Let's welcome Pastor Kurt. Another thing that all men need is a firm understanding of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I do not think you can officially claim manhood if you do not understand how WandaVision, how Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and how all of those will fit into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm tired of these weak men who don't understand the significance of Thor and the Guardians of the Galaxy in relation to the stability of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's from the Lord. Even though Jesus is our Superman. Let me preach now. You know, there's some people that would come to the pulpit and think they're preaching by saying that. I am not one of those people. Let's pray. Let's pray and get comfortable. Father, we thank you for the ability to be able to to meet together, to come together, even though not everyone in this particular room is a member of this particular church, but they may be members of the church, the body of Christ. And so, Lord, today we, we are grateful for the responsibility and the opportunity to hear your word in person, or to hear what we perceive to be a word from you. So, Lord, I pray that you would For those who are members of this church and who have been a part of the series that we're in, I pray that today would be a helpful understanding of what we'll talk about. For those who are not members of this church and are coming to visit and haven't been a part of the journey that we've been on to hear this message, I pray that this may also be helpful for them as well. But ultimately, Lord, helpful or not, I pray that what's said today, as what's sung today, glorifies you. This is less about my delivery, my personality, my understanding. This is more about your glory. So even in my error, be glorified. For your glory and our good, in your name we pray, amen. If you are visiting our church, visiting this morning, either online or in person. We have been in a series in the book of Romans. It's a Romans review series. We were in Romans before the pandemic, and then we paused for quite some time to deal with just the pressures of and the fears of what does it mean to live in a culture where you may catch a virus and die. And so we paused for a long time, and so we've since January, been returning back to the book of Romans and speaking messages to help us get back into the mind of the book. So if you're a guest this morning and this is your first time, let me apologize first because this will be a little different than what we're normally used to. This is not going to be for you possibly an easy to follow 
message because we're, we're examining a portion of a chapter in the book of Romans and trying to understand what does it actually mean because it is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. So it's one of those passages where people have studied it and have come to multiple positions, but two in particular. And today we're going to look at are those true? Because I have said that I don't think that either of those interpretations are the right ones. I am going against some of the theological heavyweights such as Augustine, Luther, Calver, Calvin, John Piper, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and others who have had different perspectives on this passage. Now, you may say, why would you go against them? Well, because they're human beings like the rest of us. They're fallible just like us. The buck doesn't stop with anyone except the scripture. And our responsibility is to study the scripture and see, does what they're saying, is this true? So that's what I intend to do this morning. Let me say this. There is no interpretation that solves the mystery of this passage. Just like just like Revelation, you can pick a particular way that you understand what Revelation means, but you're not going to get one that solves and answers every question. This, what I'm going to say today, what people have said is not going to resolve every mystery related to this passage. Paul's writing can be challenging. In fact, Peter says this in Peter's second epistle. He says this talking about Paul's letters in verse in chapter three, verse 15. Here's what Peter says about Paul. He says this also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they do with the rest of the scripture. So here's Peter, one who was with God the whole time filled with the spirit of God, whom God made the leader of the apostles, he is acknowledging that Paul has things in his letters that are difficult to understand. He's saying that as someone filled with the spirit, speaking and teaching the very scripture that will become eventually our Bible. So he's saying Paul has some stuff that's hard to understand. So Peter's saying that, I think we should believe him. One of the reasons and one of the challenges why it's hard to understand what Paul is talking about in the passage we're looking at in Romans 7 is because we don't know what it's like. We don't know what it was like to to live under the Mosaic law. We have no idea. We can read about it. We can watch movies and reinterpretations, but none of us know what it's like to live as a Jew thinking that the way that I am Uh, uh, righteous before God is by keeping all of these laws and by all these rituals. And then all of a sudden, this guy named Jesus comes and now we don't have to do those in the same way. None of us know what that transition is like for us. We've only lived like this. So we can't imagine the paradigm shift for them to say you are not under the Mosaic law. You don't have to obey the Ten Commandments perfectly in the same way because Jesus has done that. We have no idea what that's like. At best, we can only come from not being a Christian to being a Christian. But in reality, we don't follow the law, though. So we don't know what that's like. 
We don't understand that the, the freedom that people would experience by believing in Jesus. We have no idea what that's like. We can't imagine. Maybe if we were in prison and prisoners of war for some time and got out and we're not free to do things that we couldn't do. Maybe on some level we would understand this idea of freedom. But as it relates to my relationship with the creator, we have no idea how difficult that transition is for them. And so we import into it our understanding, our ideas, because we just don't know. We don't know what that's like. We don't know what freedom actually looks like. Here's what we do know. Jesus in speaking to people, said this in front of a bunch of people in Matthew 11. Here's what Jesus said. Here's what we do know. Jesus said this. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we know this. That from Jesus's perspective, whatever they were living and believing was way more difficult than believing in him. We know that at least. We know that Jesus said, my burden is like, come follow me. Follow me. Believe in me. My, 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 my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying that in comparison to the yoke and burden that you're under right now. So we at least know from Jesus's perspective how they were living was way more difficult for them than how they would live by following Jesus. That we do know. Another challenge in trying to understand what's happening is, is, is people often start with this, this question. Who is Paul speaking as? And when we we're going to read that, we're going to read for those of you who don't know what we're talking about. We're going to read the verses in just a moment. But who is Paul speaking as? Is he, he speak, is he speaking as a, as, as a believer struggling with sin or is he speaking as an un, un, unregenerate Jew? Is he speaking? Is he personifying Israel? Who is he speaking as? These are the questions. The challenge is and the key is not who is Paul speaking as, but who is he speaking to? Who's he talking to? We run to well, he, he clearly is talking about himself. Look, it's all the eyes in the first person. But who's he talking to? And why is he saying what he's saying based on who he's talking to? He's talking to people for a reason, and he's saying this for a reason. To do this correctly, we have to spill over into Romans chapter 8. We have to. Because you see, our Bibles have these chapter headings and these verses. But when Paul wrote this, it didn't have that. It was just a thought. It just kept it, There were no chapter headings, no verses. It wasn't like Paul after Romans 7 said, all right, let me stop here. We chill for a while. and Let me just write life in the spirit. No, no, no. That's what people have done over time to help us understand what's happening. But those chapter headings are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Those are, those are there by the publisher of whatever Bible translation you're using to help you understand at least what they think will be what this passage is about. So it's helpful, but it's not necessarily biblical. So when we look at these and we think, oh, my chapter heading says the problem of sin in us. Maybe that's what Paul's talking about, but maybe not. We have, to, we have to imagine him writing the letter straight through because in the days of the, when these letters were written, they read these letters straight through. 
They don't have the capacity that we have. We're too distracted by technology and other desires. We don't have the capacity. At some point, a couple people in here are going to pull out their phone. You're going to pull out your phone, look at it, check your, no matter what, you're going to check your Instagram, you're going to check your Twitter, you're going to check your Facebook. You might even make a move on chess real quick. You might even do a quick word with friends joint. If you still play Candy Crush, which is actually a sin issue in my book, if you're still playing that type of game, you might do that. Like, you don't have the capacity to sit and listen to the scripture being read the way they did. They don't get up and they don't start talking to other people and cracking jokes. Maybe they did, but they read the whole letter. So you saw it in context. That's a challenge because we read the letter in sections. We read these five verses and then that's our quiet time for today. And then we read these. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's not the only way to truly understand what the Bible is actually saying. So today will be a little different. I'm going to try to prove a case. I do not think Paul is talking as a Christian confessing his sin. I do not. I think Paul is speaking as a Christian because he's never not speaking as a Christian. But I don't think he's confessing his sin in the passage we're about to read. I think it's something more profound. And we'll walk through that. Beginning in verse 14 of chapter 7 in Romans. I'm reading from the CSB translation. And I quote. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I hate, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. End quote. Last week, someone asked the question, which interpret, does does the interpretation you choose matter? If you think Paul is a Christian or if you think he's speaking as an unregenerate Jew, which means just a a Jewish Jew before Christ. Does that matter? And I said, not really. And my answer was speaking to the grand scheme of our relationship with God and our journey to eternity with him. In the grand scheme, no, it doesn't matter. Just like it doesn't matter what end times position you choose in the grand scheme. But now I want to revise my answer because I think it does matter if you think he's confessing his sin as a Christian and talking about the struggles of the Christian life. I think it does matter if you think that way and it can affect you if you think that way. So today I'm going to do two things. I want to try to show why I don't think that's what he's doing. And then I'm going to show you what I think he is doing, what he is saying right here. 
And the reason why this is important, because if you think Paul is confessing his sin, that he's he's sharing his struggles as a Christian living with sin. Then there's nowhere else in the New Testament that scripture expects you to feel this way as a believer. You will not find other verses in the New Testament after believing in Jesus that expect you to feel what Paul is expressing right here as a Christian. In fact, you won't find Paul say this anywhere else in any other letter. So if Paul is confessing his sin as a Christian, then there's nowhere else in the New Testament that expects you to have this perspective of yourself while you're living and struggling with sin. Not in a credible translation. Not in any. And you can feel free. This is all you can test me on this. Search the New Testament. Search the epistles. You won't find it in any, you won't find it in John and Peter and t- none of them. As a matter of fact, here's what you'll hear stuff like this in 1 John 2 1. He'll say stuff like this. This is John, the Apostle John. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's saying, listen, if you do sin, guess what? You're justified. You've been justified in Jesus. You have an advocate. If you do sin, you have an advocate. Don't forget, you're justified. Second Peter 1, 9 and 10. These are verses that I share with my church consistently. But I want to make sure we understand what's saying here. This is what Peter says. In verses 5 through 7 of 2 Peter 1, he lists these qualities about brotherly affection, love, and, and all these things. And he says this in verse 9. You can go back and check these yourself. I don't have time to go through all of those. But he says this, the person who lacks these things, these good qualities, he said, is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. You see what he says? If you're not making progress and you're as a believer, then the issue is not, oh, you're a sold under sin as a slave and you have no power over it. He says, nah, you're forgetting that you're justified. You're forgetting your former sins have been cleansed and you actually have power over this sin. He doesn't say, oh, what a wretched man you are. No, he says, you have power. You've forgotten. You've forgotten that you are justified in Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 10, he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to conform your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. You know what he's saying right there? Make sure you know you're justified. Make sure you know you're justified. He's not. That's what calling an election is, right? It's to be justified. Make sure you're a believer and you, and you believe in Jesus, because if you do, then you're justified. That's the motivation for your obedience. You're not motivated from your obedience by recognizing how sinful you are and how wretched your body is. That's not the point that the New Testament makes apart from Romans 7, if he's talking as a Christian, confessing his sin. Another passage that you see in 2 Timothy, same writer, Paul, wrote this. This is a trustworthy saying, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So this deny Jesus is not the same thing as sinning against the Lord. It's I don't recognize him. He's not my Lord and Savior. There are people that profess to be Christians that deny Jesus and walk away from the faith. And he says, if you deny me, then he's going to deny you. 
You can't deny him and then expect him to be like, there's my child. Let him in. It's like, nope. It's not happening. My bad does not work in that scene. He's saying, listen, if we are faithless, that means if we sin, he's going to remain faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. Who is himself? Those who are justified that are a part of his body. He's not going to, de- he's not going to deny people. He's not going to, you know, he remains faithful. He's not going to deny himself. He's not going to say, oh, they don't belong to me. It's like, nah. You know why? Because we're saints that can still sin. The scripture doesn't anywhere. I could list, I could say 15, 20 more scriptures. It doesn't say anywhere else besides Romans 7, this perspective of myself as a Christian struggling with sin. So if we're going to say that Romans 7, 14 through 25, is Paul acknowledging his personal ongoing struggle with sin, we have to ask some questions. One being, then what law is the believer, especially Gentile Christians, trying to keep? When Paul says, for the, we know that the law is spiritual, for I do, we know that the law is good, what law is he talking about that a Christian is trying to keep? The law of Christ? Well, that would be antithetical to what he's saying in the passage because everything is about the law of Moses. So when he gets to verses 14, what law is, are Christians trying to keep that in the spirit, in Jesus Christ, we are unable to keep? What law is he talking about as a Christian? If this is the response of a believer struggling with sin, is this how we're supposed to feel when we sin? So if I don't feel this way when I sin, am I taking my sin seriously? Is this really supposed to be the response of a believer struggling with occasional sin? So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. So as a professing believer... Are we to believe that the New Testament is teaching that there's no ability to be able to resist sin? Is that what we're being told here? I don't think so. I don't think so. The two main reasons from this passage that people think that Paul is describing the Christian's ongoing struggle with sin. There's two main reasons. The first is that he says I a lot. I am doing this. I struggle with sin. I, I, I know not, that nothing good lives in me, for I do not do what I want to do. So I discover this law when I want to do what I want. So that's, and that's, that's, that's legitimate. First person, he's speaking as himself, I. The second reason in the passage that people say he has to be talking as a Christian is verse 25. Because he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God but with my flesh, the law of sin. They say, well, that's the Christian life. I'm serving the law of God, but also the law of sin in my flesh. Those are the two main reasons that people say in this passage, he's a Christian. One of the main reasons why people say he's not a Christian outside of the passage is found in Galatians 5. Many people believe that what Paul is saying in Romans 7 is the same thing he's getting at in Galatians 5.17 when he says this. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. 
These are opposed to each other so that you do not do what you want. That sounds reasonable. Because Paul wrote these words as well. It sounds like that's what he's saying. So I want to start with Galatians and then work our way into actual Romans 7. Here's the problem with saying that that's what Paul means in Galatians 5. Here's the problem. We have to read what he says in Galatians 5.16, not just 5.17. So here's what he says in Galatians 5.16, the verse before that. He says this. I say then, walk by the spirit and you will you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. Listen to what he's saying. Walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. That's his perspective. But in Romans seven, he's incapable of not carrying out the desires of the flesh. But in here, he says, if you walk by the spirit, you will certainly not do that. And then he says in verse 17, for the flesh desires what against the spirit and the spirit desires what against the what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you do not do what you want to do. These aren't equal entities. He's saying, look, if you walk by the spirit, you will definitely not walk by the flesh. Why? The spirit's there to stop the flesh from doing what it wants to do. The flesh does try to oppose the spirit, but the spirit said these aren't like these two. These aren't like angel and demon on your shoulder. Oh, man, listen to God, obey God. Oh, man, don't listen to him. That's not what it says. That's a cartoon. He's not talking about that. He's talking about something more profound. Listen, if you walk by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So then we have to assume that Paul is not walking by the spirit than in Romans seven, because he's saying he doesn't have the ability to resist him. He's a slave. The context of what Paul says in Galatians five. Comes out of what he says to them in Galatians three. We're going to start in verse 220. Here's the point that Paul is making. Here's his problem with the Galatians and why he's telling them, walk by the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. You won't live disobediently if you walk by the spirit. He said, you most certainly will not. Here's what he's getting at. Here's why he's saying that. Look at Galatians 220. We're going to start there and read a few verses beyond. He says this. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the son of God, right? That same body that is overwhelmed by sin in Romans seven. He says, I am. I live in the body by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So he's saying, listen, if it were possible for anyone to live according to the Mosaic law, and be declared by God as righteous enough to come to heaven, then Christ wouldn't have to come. So he said, I'm not going to nullify the grace of God, because if righteousness comes through the law, then what did Christ die for? What's the point? If you can do it, then why did he have to come do it, is essentially what he's saying. And then it goes on in Galatians 3. You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? What if I said that to y'all? You foolish son. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I only want to learn this from you. Do you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by leaving by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by the spirit? Are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? If in fact it was for nothing, 
So then, does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham, who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Let me explain what he's saying. He's saying this. How are you? How did you start off by believing in Jesus Christ? And now you're talking about circumcision and talking about obeying the Mosaic law. Like what? Who who confused? Who bewitched you? Like, how do you start off by faith in Jesus is how I'm saving you. Observe all these miracles only to now say we got to go back and, and, and live the Mosaic law. He's like, what are you talking about? He's frustrated because they're rejecting their justification. See, here's what you might not know. The way God designed Old Testament Jews to live was justification was coming by obeying the law. Here's the catch, though. You got to do it perfectly. And if you do it one time, that's a wrap for the rest of your life. So God, in his kindness, provided a way out by having circum. You could you could sacrifice animals. And that was your way that you'd be forgiven for the sins that you committed. Because the law, you couldn't keep it perfectly. So his frustration is them trying to reject their justification. This was the main issue in Paul's day. One of the main ones is that I need to help these people believe that they are justified so that they will live sanctified. Help them believe that they are forgiven by Jesus. So now they live for Jesus with confidence. Because if you start saying, well, you're justified by basically it's this. Whose flesh justifies you before God? Whose flesh makes you righteous before God? When God looks at you and says, you're not guilty, you're not going to be punished for the sins you committed. On whose standard is that your own flesh and your own obedience or Jesus's? This is the point that he's making. Whose flesh are you trusting in to stand before God to determine where you're going to spend eternity? Jesus's flesh or your flesh? And he's frustrated because they're they're going back to focusing on their own flesh, their own ability to obey God. And he's saying, we told you, you can't do it. Stop getting circumcised. It doesn't matter anymore. That's the argument that he's making in Galatians. The main disobedience for Paul was people, Christians trying to keep the Mosaic law. And it wasn't just Galatians. It was prevalent in Romans. That's a predominant theme for him is, listen, I need to remind you repeatedly that you're justified so you have confidence to live sanctified. I want to remind you that you are forgiven by Jesus so that you have confidence to live in obedience in Jesus. That's his point. We'll see this flushed out in a couple of ways. Now to Romans 7. There are three therefores that we have to pay attention to in this chapter. Well, one of them is in Romans 8, 1, but it's connected. Three therefores. Now, here's what the word therefore means. Whenever you see therefore in the Bible, it, used, it means either so, then, so then, <laughs> consequently, you see, or as a result, right? So therefore, pretty much says, okay, as a result of what I just said, now this. That's what therefore means in the Bible. In Romans 7, there are two therefores and there's one in, in, in Romans 8. We have to look at what these therefores mean. So verse 4 is the first therefore. Here's what he's saying in therefore, this one. Therefore, 
My brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may not belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Okay, so that's the therefore. So in light of what, as a result, so what is he saying? You see, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death. Well, what is he saying that from? What does he say before that that he's trying to help them understand the difference? Well, verse one says this, since I am speaking, who is he speaking to? I'm speaking to those who know the law. Gentile Christians wouldn't know the law of Moses because they didn't have to live it. So in this chapter, he's speaking to Christians who are Jewish that know the law. Since I'm speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then if she married, if she's married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then if she is married to another man, she's not an adulteress. So he's saying, listen, you who know the law, let me give you an example, an analogy of marriage. A man and a woman are married and she's bound to that marital contract while he's alive. If he dies, she's no longer bound to that because he's dead. She can marry again. No big deal. That's his point. That's the analogy he's making in verses one through three. So he says this in verse four. Therefore, as a re- you see, so let's use the word you see, my brothers, you were also put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. So he's basically saying you were married to the law and now I've died. So that, that relationship, that contract is over. Just like the marriage contract, that contract is over. You are no longer obligated to the law. He's trying to help them understand, listen, your, your justification is not in the law anymore. That's dead. Why? Because of Jesus. That's what he says in verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now, verse 6, we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter to the law. That newness of the spirit that he's talking about is still in his human body. He's not speaking metaphysically. He's talking like now that we've died to the to the to the conditions of keeping the law, we're justified in Jesus. We live free. We live differently now. That therefore is telling them as an example to say, listen, this is how it works. Let me show you how it works. Here's a marriage analogy. Now consider yourself divorced and be able to live a different way because that's dead now. The next, therefore, is in verse seven. He says this, therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. So therefore, I think what he's saying here is consequently. Let's go back and look at what he says before. Therefore, in verse seven, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, do not covet. And sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me covering coveting of every kind. So basically saying, listen, the law is good. Why? Because it helps me understand where I'm not obeying God. I wouldn't have known that this was sinful until the law said, don't do this. That's his point. That's the point that he's making. 
He says, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang a life in me and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death. So he's just describing. So he says, therefore. So what's before the therefore? We get to the therefore. So then, verse 12, the body is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Verse 13, therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. He's trying to help them. Because of everything I just said, it doesn't mean that the law that was good is somehow bad. Say, no, 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 that's not, that's, not, that's not it. The last, therefore, is in Romans 8, 1, where he says this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. And here's what he says before that, therefore, in 8, 1. For we know that the law is sinful, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave unto sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that is good. And we know the passage and it goes on and on and on. And then it says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, as a result of what I just said, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So this turmoil that he's describing, he's saying there's. As a result of what I said, there's no condemnation for Jesus because thanks be to God, Jesus. Now, condemnation is a word that's in contrast to righteousness. Righteous means God's going to say you're not guilty for your sin. Condemnation means God's going to tell you you are guilty for your sin, where you will spend an eternity in hell. Now, we're all guilty for our sin. The issue is what makes you righteous? Whose flesh is God judging for the failure to keep his law? Is it yours or Jesus's? So if there's no condemnation, do we have to make sure we remember what condemnation is? It's, it's a punishment, it's a penalty. It's to judge someone as definitely guilty and subject to punishment. It's to render a guilty verdict. So if he says there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, well, that condemnation is a justification issue. That's a justification issue. He's saying there's no condemnation. There's no guilty verdict for all the struggle with sin that I was saying in verses 14 through 24 because of Jesus. That's a justification issue. That's a who am I before God? Not guilty. There's no condemnation. This is important. Because we read Romans 7, 14 through 24 as a sanctification issue. We read it as obedience to the law, the process of growing. If he's a Christian, then this language is the process of dealing with sin and living that way. But he says there's no condemnation. That's a justification issue. Paul is talking about what justifies a person to God. Not how a person is struggling with sin. Before God, this is a justification issue. The key word, he says, is the word now. Therefore, there is now 
No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's almost the now is in every translation that I've looked at. So it's every translation that I looked at. The word now is there. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He's contrasting now contrast then. So there was condemnation. You were guilty for struggling with sin and disobeying God's law. But now you're not. Now there's no condemnation. You're justified. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. This will make sense in a minute. This is a justification issue, but we largely look at it as a sanctification issue. So we think Paul is describing the ongoing struggle with sin. And Paul is what he's saying is that you're justified by God, whether you struggle with sin or not. How difficult the struggle is, is irrelevant. This is not a sanctification issue. It's a justification statement. See, here's our issue. We view condemnation. Most of us, when we think of condemnation, you know what we think of? How I feel when I sin. How I feel. I feel horrible. Oh, I gave in to sin again and I feel terrible. And that's good. We should, right? On some level. But we view condemnation, the word, we think of it as a personal, emotional, negative group of feelings because I've sinned. And so if that's the issue, if condemnation here means that, then it's definitely a sanctification issue. But if condemnation here means justification. Then that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about how bad you feel when you sin. He's talking about how justified you are to continue fighting. He's not describing Oh, this is what it feels like when I feel even if you feel like that. He's not describing this is what I feel like. He's describing you don't have to feel this way because you're justified. You're forgiven in Christ Jesus. Listen, let's go a little bit further in Romans eight. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Verse two, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse three. For what could the law do? What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of as a sinful offering. That's a justification language that has nothing to do with how you feel as a Christian. It has to do with your state before God, even as you struggle with sin. Paul's not describing how he feels as a believer. He's describing the justification that comes to live confidently, even if there's a sin struggle. Oh, this will make sense in a second. Paul is talking about the freedom to obey because you've been justified. That's a different motivation. There's a different confidence Paul's talking about. In fact, many, most, almost every theologian will say that chapters five through eight of, of Romans is talking about the Christian life. Most everyone will say that. Here's the thing, and I agree with that, but here's what Paul's talking about in chapters five through eight. He is convincing people of their justification. And even the, the, the notions of obeying are obeying because you're justified. Let me prove this. Let's go to chapter five. Chapter five is all about justification by faith. 
God will see us as not guilty, not because we didn't sin or we didn't sin as much as we used to, but because Jesus's flesh is who was judged instead of ours. After he kept the law perfectly. So this is this is justification. Listen to this language. Beginning in verse eight, I'm not going to hit the whole chapter because we'll be here till next Thursday. All these chapters, I'm just going to hit portions. You can go back and check these for yourself. At the end of the day, you don't have to agree with anything I'm saying, but I promise you to free you. Listen to what he's saying in verse beginning in verse eight. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we have now received this reconciliation. So he's talking about, look, you've been justified. God is God now sees us as sons and daughters. We have a that's what reconciliation means. Like God had a problem with us and Jesus resolved that problem. And now God said, these are my these are my children. They went, they went from my enemies to my children. These are my sons and daughters. Verse 18 through 21 in Romans 5. So then, as, as though, as through one trespass, talking about Adam, there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience that many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience that many will be made righteous. For the law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. In other words, the law came and now people realize how much they really sin because they know what they're doing. But he's saying, but grace came more because God is saying, I'm forgiving you for all of that sin. Because you have faith in Jesus Christ. So he says this in verse 21, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's, he's helping you understand how do you view your justification, your identity? Now let's look at Romans 6. Romans 6 is basically him saying, live sanctified because you're justified. It's justification language. Listen to this. What should we say then? He's, he's, should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? So basically he's saying, wait a minute. He's assuming that people are like, wait a minute, if I'm justified... And I'm forgiven for sin because of the grace. Well, should we? Can I keep sinning then? Because grace would be. And he's like, no, no. That's a wrong understanding of justification. He's correcting their view of sin in light of the grace of God, because you know what? Our propensity is, hey, if I ain't going to get punished for it, I might as well keep doing it. My mom can tell you, man, when I was a kid, she was like, look, be in before the lights get dark. Before the lights come on, that means it's dark outside. I rarely made it. And there were times where I was running. I'd be running home or riding my bike and the lights came on and I knew I was in trouble. I was like, shit, I might as well just stay out a little longer then because I'm in trouble anyway. Why go in now and get it beaten now? I might as well have you know, more fun for a couple of hours. I'm going to get in trouble anyway. I might as well. That's how people think about God's grace. Well, it's God's job to forgive, so I might as well keep sinning anyway. And he's saying, no, 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 no. That's a wrong understanding of your justification. So he asked this question in Romans 6. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? No, that's not how you view justification. He's saying, absolutely not. How can we who still died, died to sin still live in it? See, that's justification language. That's not sanctification language. We're still fighting sin, right? 
But he's saying from a justification standpoint, man, that thing has no power. You died to that. Verse three, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's justification language. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father. So we, too, may walk in newness of life. Let me tell you something. Most of the obedience that the Jews did from the Old Testament to the new was relatively similar. Of course, they didn't have to sacrifice things and all of that. Those, but the, in terms of like resisting temptation, it still was they were still doing the same thing. The difference with what Paul is saying here is because you've been forgiven. You can live differently with a different freedom over sin. You can live differently. See, we don't understand that because we don't know the transition. But he's, this is all justification language. This isn't even sanctification yet. He's just saying, listen, you got to live sanctified because you're justified. Verse 12 in Romans 6. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as a weapon for righteousness. Verse 15, what then? Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. He is helping them understand how do I understand sin in light of this grace that I've received and I'm justified. So let me correct your assumptions so that you don't keep sinning that way. Don't let sin reign over you. You don't just let sin. And as we said in verse 21, for, so what fruit was produced from the things that you were now ashamed of? Why would you give in to sin when you were ashamed of those things before? Like, no. That's not how it works. You're justified. Live differently. Live with more confidence and more freedom. Because God isn't creeping over your back, ready to blast you every time you sin, like some of us come to think. Say, man, you know what he's he's basically saying is that you, I, and them don't understand the significance of our justification. We don't understand the significance of what Jesus did. And how serious God takes that action and his commitment to forgive those who believe in it. That's why all these verses in the New Testament will remind you when you fail, you still belong to God. If you have failed, you have a mediator. If you're not making progress, you're forgetting that you're justified. He's saying you don't understand your justification because if you truly believe that you're justified in Jesus, you're going to live with a certain confidence even when you fail. That's how sick, but we don't, it's hard to grasp. It's hard to grasp. This is justification language. In Romans 7, it's still talking about justification. But he's saying, look, the law is good, but your flesh isn't. You cannot be justified by your own flesh. So he says in verse 7, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who were also put to death in relation to the law, the body of Christ Jesus, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit. So he's saying, listen, there should be progress in you because you're justified. There's a confidence that you have. You have God's spirit now. It reminds you of things. It, it, it helps you grow and resist things that you didn't have before. This is all justification language. In chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul is helping them understand how does justification affect my pursuit of obedience? And he's telling them two things. Here's your identity in Christ. 
And here's your responsibility in Christ. Now go. Live with confidence. This isn't, these aren't verses of sanctification. In fact, it's not till we get to chapter 12 that we actually get to practical Christian living. The heading in your Bible will say marks of a true Christian right before verse nine. That's when he starts to talk about, all right, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. He's not saying that yet. This is all big picture. Hey, don't let sin overwhelm you. Why? Because you're justified. There's something about recognizing the significance of your justification, that you're you're free before God from the penalty of sin that should promote the pursuit of righteousness. This is what he's saying. It's all justification language. Look at Romans 8. We read this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. There's no declared guilty for your sin. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh, Paul is talking about people trying to keep the law. He's not thinking of non-Christians in the way that we do. Oh, we share the gospel when they reject it. So they live according to the flesh. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's staying in the language and in the realm of justification. Those who live according to the flesh or those who try to live uh, perfectly the law, which they can't do. Those who live according to the spirit or those who have faith in Jesus Christ and obey that way. There's two motives for obedience. Your flesh or his flesh. He's saying your flesh. You're going to stand before God and be like, you didn't do it perfectly. Depart from me. I never knew you. Didn't we do all these works in your name? They weren't perfect. Depart from me. I never knew you. I don't know you. Didn't we? I don't know you. Those who believe in Jesus. Welcome home. Well done. Thy good and faithful servant. Why? Because you were so obedient. No. Because you trusted in his obedience. And that's what motivates your obedience. That's what he's saying. Oh, we ain't done yet. We got a couple more minutes. Give me a couple more minutes. Don't try to rush me out. This is my house. I'm just playing with y'all. Paul wants to make sure that we understand that when we sin, we are forgiven for real. Look, they were constantly under the fear of God's wrath for sin. They needed to learn that they're constantly under the, the blood of God's son when they sin. Coming to a close here, the use of analogies. Paul uses analogies to explain his point. He uses a lot of analogies. Sometimes he says them, sometimes you figure them out. Case in point, Romans 6. Here's what he says in verse 15. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Verse 17, but thanks be to God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. 19, I am using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. So here Paul is telling them what I just said in those three verses about slave and free. That's an analogy because it's because it's hard for you to understand what I'm saying. So I'm going to use an analogy to help you understand what I mean. In Romans 7, he uses an analogy of marriage, right? 
Verse one, since I'm speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, he's giving them an example of marriage. Here's an example of what I mean. You know what it means to be married. Someone dies, but he gives them an example. And then he says, you are like the woman whose husband died. You are free now to marry someone else, to marry Christ, to live according to the way Christ does it and not Moses, because you've died to that. That's an analogy. He says this in, in verse seven. So for what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not known if it were, if I would not know what sin were if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law said do not covet. And seeing sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced in me every type of coveting, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And he says this in verse 9. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life in me and I died. The commandment that was meant for me resulted in death for me. Here's the question. In this language, just this language. When was Paul ever alive apart from the law? When was he ever alive apart from the law? This is first person. If he's talking about his own relationship and own struggle, when was Paul ever alive apart from the law? He never was because he was a Jew and grew up. You had to memorize the whole first five books of the Pentateuch when you were 13 at your bar mitzvah. Paul was never apart from the law. Let me prove it. Philippians 3, 3 through 6. Here's what he says about himself. This is Paul as a Christian looking back on himself as a non-Christian. This is his perspective of himself. Paul in his own words. Here's what he says in Philippians 3. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Now, listen to what he's saying. Paul is looking back on himself as a non-Christian and saying, I was killing it. So if anyone wants to boast about having confidence in their flesh, their ability to keep the law, I can. And his proof is this. When he said circumcised on the eighth day, you know what he was saying? That my parents kept the law strictly. That was the law. Not everybody obeyed the law and got circumcised on the eighth day. Paul said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. My parents kept the law. A commentator said this about Paul's perspective right here. He said this. Regarding achievement, he spoke of zeal and the law. Pharisee comes from the word meaning separation, e.g. to honor the Old Testament law. Zeal, evidenced by persecuting the church, was unnecessary even for Pharisees. So he's saying, I went beyond what most Pharisees did. And then he says this, righteousness that is in the law means that Paul achieved all the law could promise. He had not failed by Jewish standards. This is his life looking back as a Christian filled with the spirit, knowing that he can't keep the law perfectly, but still says, I can have more confidence than any of them because I kept the law better than all of them. So now all of a sudden, now Paul, with the spirit of God in him, thinks less of himself than he did when he was a non-Christian. Paul now thinks of himself as weaker than he was as a non-Christian. He's boasting 
as a Christian about his life as a non-Christian and his ability to keep the law. And now all of a sudden he's talking about my inability to obey in Jesus Christ. I don't think so. I don't think so. Paul's view of himself was, listen, when Paul said I was the chief of sinners, he's not talking about his sanctification. Paul's talking about I was so zealous in keeping the law that I persecuted God's people. I was so deceived by my righteousness in the law that I went as far as persecuting the church. And because of that, I'm the worst of sinners. Because I killed God's, I persecuted God's people. Paul's not saying his sanctification was low. He's saying his justification was so high that it led him to disobey who God is. And so he sees that and is like, man, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the last person that deserves to be an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church. Paul's view of himself as a Christian is this, 1 Corinthians 4. Listen, he's not sitting around worrying about struggling with sin. At least you don't get the impression in any other letters. And again, people are going to believe what they believe. Fine, stick with your theologian and you'll say, well, he said this. Cool. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. A person should think of him thinking this way as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I won't even judge myself for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. Paul is saying, listen, I'm not even judging myself. God will do that. But in Romans 7, he surely is judging himself, though, huh? But he's saying in another place, I'm not even judging myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself. I'm not aware of any sin that I've committed. That's what he's saying. See, we live in such a defeated state that we expect to sin more than we expect not to sin. And so we evaluate what the Bible says, like as if everyone has this expectation, but the Bible doesn't. Now, I'm not talking about living sinless, but the Bible expects us to think and to have confidence, to bear fruit in every good work. And if you're not, then Peter said, look, you're forgetting who you are. If you're not making progress, it ain't because you, you, you're, you're sold as a slave under sin. It's because you're forgetting that you're justified. Romans 7 is a justification issue, not a sanctification issue. Paul isn't identifying with them. He's trying to get them to, under, to bring them where he is, what he already knows and believes to be true. Let me prove this point lastly, and then we'll close. Listen to what Paul says. I'm going to read this. I'm going to read Romans 7 one more time, the end, just so you get it. I'm going to read it in Romans 8. Listen to this. One more time, Romans 7. It's the last time I'll read this section. I know you're tired of it. He says, it's for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my flesh for the desire to do what is good. But there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. That's a key word. I practice. 
1 John 3, 9 says no one born of God will practice sinning because the spirit of God is in them. Paul's saying I'm practicing sinning right here. And 1 John 3 says, nah, no one born of God practices sin. So this is Paul confessing his sin. Let's stay with it. Let's go. Let's pick up on verse 23. But I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of the body. Verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body of death? Thank, from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Let's pause here for a second. If Paul is confessing his sin and talking about his struggle with sin, then we have some grammatical problems. Why does he say, why does he change the personal pronoun in Romans 8.1? If Paul is confessing his own sin, Romans 8.1 should say this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of in Jesus Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. That's not what Paul says. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. So how is he talking about his struggle with sin and then saying it set you free? Why doesn't he say it set me free? Because I've been talking about how much I'm struggling with sin, but it set me free. But no, he says it set you free. Because Paul isn't confessing his sin. He's using himself as an analogy to help them understand that their struggle with sin is justified in Jesus Christ. He's not using first. If we, we're going to read the rest some more of Romans eight. And most of those he's talking about generaliz, generalizations, those who practice this, or those who he says us and we a couple times. But he says you a lot. Because he's the personal pronouns matter. Why didn't Paul say it set me free from sin? Because that's not the point that Paul was trying to make. He wasn't trying to make the point that he's struggling with sin. He's trying to help them see that you're justified even though you struggle with sin. It's a first person analogy. His emphasis, Paul's not struggling, saying, listen, let me share you that I'm just like you. Nah, he's saying, I want y'all to be like me. I'm trying to bring y'all to believe what I already believe to be true. Paul's not identifying with their sinfulness. He's saying, let me, you need to identify with his righteousness. I already believe this. I'm trying to help y'all understand. Let's, look at, let's keep reading. Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin. That's, that's justification language. Paul is trying to say, listen, all that struggle in 14 through 24, you're justified. You don't have to feel that way. You don't have to interact with, you don't have to think of sin that way and think you're because you're justified. There's a power in knowing you're declared righteous before God. Now, understanding how to use that power, that's a different story. <laughs> but understanding it, 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 we can laugh, right? But 2 Timothy 3, he said what? Uh, he, in, in the list of all these sins that he lists in 2 Timothy 3, 5, he said, look, those who have the form of godliness, but deny its power. Those are people that are going to experience the wrath of God. Say, look that up, 2 Timothy 3, 5. Those who have the form of godliness, but deny its power. These are people who understand what it takes to be saved, but they don't feel like doing it. 
I know I ain't saying nothing. Listen. Verse two, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened in the flesh, God did. This is all justification. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. In order that the law's requirement will be fulfilled. Now he brings himself into it in us. So once he makes sure you understand, Paul's not talking about himself. He's saying you need to believe this. And then he includes himself in it in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He's talking about the motive for how we obey is that we're justified in Christ. That's what it means to walk according to the spirit. We live differently for those who live according to the flesh, have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. See, all this for those, for those, for those. These are generalizations. He's making a point to help them understand. Listen, you've been justified all of Romans eight. When you get to the end of it, that he says that, you know, that nothing can separate you from God. Why? Because you're justified. All of Romans 8 is language trying to help us understand that we are justified before God. That Romans 7 is an analogy of Paul saying, listen, I'm making a point to show you that even in all that struggle, you've been set free because you've been justified by Jesus. Paul's already set free. That's why he didn't say me in verse one. He said, you need to know this because I already know it. I already believe this. I'm trying to help you believe this. The point isn't this is my sin. The point is you're justified. There's no condemnation. You're not guilty for that failure of sin in the flesh. That's the point that he's making. It's not about. So, yes, he is a Christian, but he's not confessing his struggles as a Christian. He's helping Christians who who struggle with keep the law and said, listen, no, 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 no. You're under grace now. Jesus did what the law couldn't do, what we couldn't do in the flesh. That's the point that he's trying to make. He's not making a personal thing because it's, it just does, it, it does not work unless you want it to. Verse 7, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so for those in the flesh who cannot please God. But you, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to. Him. Now, if Christ is in you, there's no there's not a lot of me in here. Paul's not sharing his struggles with sin and then comforting himself with the truth. It was an analogy to help you see that you should be comforted because you've rejected the law and you're living in the spirit. You believe in Jesus. You're justified. There's no condemnation for your inability to live perfectly. That's what it's about. You got to live perfectly to keep the law and you can't. And you don't have to worry about being condemned before God. You won't because you put faith in Jesus. He lived perfectly. And now you live with confidence in his perfection. That's what Paul is saying. The rest of Romans 8 is him just saying what's true because of justification. Verse 14, for all those who are led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, this is who you are now. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. It's all language. Like, this is all true because Christ has justified all of us. He doesn't really get to practical sanctification until chapter 12. Because you know what 9 and 11 is? Chapter 9 is going to be about God's sovereignty over choosing who gets to be justified or not. That's chapter 9. Chapter 10 talks about the response of people who were justified by believing in Jesus. And chapter 11 is him making the point, don't think that the Jews who have rejected Jesus will not at some point be justified and believe in Jesus. It's all justification until Romans 12. Now, he says, all right, therefore, 12.1, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable in due time. That's when he starts talking about, all right, practical Christian living. Here's how you live. Verse 13, submit to governing authorities. Verse 14, chapter 14. Uh, uh, walk humbly if your brother struggles with something and you don't serve him. That's what he does. That's all practical Christian living. That's sanctification. This is justification language. Paul's trying to help you see, hey, the point of the passage is not his personal struggle with sin. The point of the passage is obedience under the law versus obedience under grace. He's not identifying with them in a the struggle with sin. He's trying to get them to identify with him in the confidence in Christ. That's Paul's perspective. Paul is bringing them theological truths they already believe and using a per- first-person analogy to illustrate that. Romans 7 are three different analogies. Marriage, what the law accomplishes, and then the failure of the law to justify. That's why there's no condemnation that set you free. Chapters 5 and 8 are a wonderful exposition of the reality and identity of those who are justified in Christ. So is he a Christian in Romans 7? Yeah. Is he confessing his sin? That's not the point he's making. Not at all. He's reminding them that because you're justified, there's no condemnation, even though there's sin in your life. That's the point. And the rest of chapter 8, he's proving that point. That's what I think the Bible says. I do not think Paul is confessing his sin as a Christian. Because if he did, then I don't understand how he could say he has no power over sin. When through the rest of the New Testament, that's all he talks about, including this letter. Let's close. Father, this is a lot of information. You have much more information than I do. I know some of this will go over people's heads, and I get that. But I pray that the simple truths that make sense stick. And Lord, ultimately, Lord, this doesn't resolve every tension of the passage. But I hope that it does spark at least, if not today, personal study, if people are curious about it. Father, I do want to pray for those who see this as Paul confessing his sin as a Christian. I pray that if that is true, that you have many more verses that do not, do not expect us to think of ourselves that way. So I pray, Father, that if it is true, if I'm wrong and he is a Christian, that you would prevent us from seeing ourselves in verses 
as the, as the way that we view ourselves when we struggle with sin, because that's not the point that he's making. In fact, in Romans 8, he makes that very clear. We are not going to experience condemnation because we have faith in Jesus Christ. I believe you want us to live confidently in the identity that you've given us. Even as we struggle, as James says, we stumble in various ways. It is inconsistent from what I see that any believer should think of himself as Paul describes in Romans 7. So Lord, I pray that you would do whatever work is necessary. Free those who need to be freed. Encourage those who need to be encouraged. And ultimately, when we all move on, confident to live sanctified because we've been justified. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, Mac, so let me just tell you, if there's any, could it be this? I'm not answering none of those questions. And here, I'm gonna be, here's why. Because we're talking about real exegetical work. If someone, unless someone has a verse that I don't want people just to be guessing, well, couldn't he just be struggling? Because then it just, it's, it's just, it, I think this is what I've said I believe it to be true. So if there's any, could it be this? Then I can talk to that person offline. I don't want to answer those type of questions. Got you. Uh, the first question that we have is a two-parter. I'll read it in its entirety and then go back to the first part. Um, so in its entirety is we now have an understanding that salvation is by grace through faith and that salvation has actually always been by grace through faith. Were there any Old Testament Jews who shared this understanding or did all the Old Testament Jews believe that righteousness came through the law? And if the majority, if not all, Jews believed that righteousness came through the law, did they simply misunderstand the scriptures or did God intentionally send a works righteousness message? So I'm going to go back to the first one, um, which is, uh, were there any Old Testament Jews who shared the understanding that um, salvation was by grace through faith or did all Old Testament Jews believe that righteousness came through the law? I, I don't think that all Old Testament Jews were monolithic in what they thought. So I think it was still grace that God gave the Jews the law, right? That's what, that was Paul's point in Romans 3. All right, well then, what was the point of circumcision then if circumcision doesn't save us? It's like, well, you were given the law of God, right? Like David in Psalm 119, David sees that as a grace. You see, so there are moments in the Old Testament where you do see people who see that as a grace and who love the law. You look at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these people. In uh, Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is a baby, you get Anna the prophetess and Simeon, right? They walk up and see Jesus as a baby and worship. Like, I think these are people, my voice is cracked a little bit, like, I think these are people that recognize the grace of God, the grace in giving them salvation. So I don't think everyone saw it as works righteousness. I think it was obedience because you believe in God, and when you fail, you got to offer sacrifices to God for that failure. But, I'm, but there were definitely people. I mean, the, there's, like, there's, there's, there's Jewish history that's not in the Bible. So like that end of like Malachi to Matthew is 400 years of Jewish history that's not in the Bible. And that's where the Pharisees rose up and all that stuff. So yeah, there were definitely people who thought that. But here's what I would say this, though. That... I think people had more of an understanding of grace than not because what mm -hmm. Jesus was most offended right. at were the Pharisees. You messed the law up. Mm -hmm. 
you've made what you think is the law equal to the Mosaic law. So he was angry at them because you are the teachers of the law and you, you've messed up the basics of the law. I don't think anyone was supposed to see it as works righteousness. But it became that way and that's what happened. So that was the first part. I don't remember what the second part was. All right, the second part was... Um, Um, and if the well, I've been putting other questions here, so <laughs> me too. Yes. Um, um, and if the majority, if the majority believe that uh, righteousness came through the law, um, if not all, did um, they simply misunderstand the scriptures, or did God intentionally send the works righteousness message? Well, I think God. God does things by progressive revelation. Like God doesn't always give everyone the full picture. Right. So God knew. I mean, in Genesis 3.15, right, God tells Eve, this woman, he tells the serpent, this woman, talking about Eve, will give birth to an offspring and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. We get no indication of who that is. From Genesis 3.15 until Jesus shows up, the whole storyline of the Bible is who is the he that's going to crush? And you see some thousands of years of progressive revelation until finally. So then he goes to Abraham, you will have an offspring. And he talks to David in 2 Samuel 7, you will have an offspring that will rule forever. These things are slowly, slowly getting to. So I think what God did in the Old Testament was provide the standard of holiness and then sacrifices for forgiveness, pointing to Jesus coming to fulfill the standard and being the ultimate sacrifice for forgiveness. All right. Um, so the next question I'll ask is, um, in your view, um, what might the consequences be in the lives of believers um, of viewing Romans 7 as speaking to sanctification, not justification? I think people, this is what I honestly believe. I've seen people do this. I think people will will not think they, can, they should make progress or can make real progress in sin because they will see Romans 7 as more normative than anything else. Mm. I think people will actually be discouraged from confidence in obedience because they will always go back to Paul saying, look, man, I'm, I'm struggling with sin. When I try to do what's good, I don't do it. I don't. That will be, I think it, I've seen it happen to people where it becomes a detriment. It's like you don't have real confidence to obey the Lord. And I'm not, and this isn't talking about just, you know, occasional sin. Like there are people who see this as the Christian life mm -hmm. as it relates to sanctification, obeying God. This is not the Christian life. It's not the cause of describing what Christians should feel like when they sin. I'm not saying we don't feel bad or we don't, but we, we keep moving. Mm -hmm. You know, righteous man falls seven times and then he gets up seven times. Mm -hmm. So I think people, I think Christians will. And then so on the other side of that, so that's one. I think the other side is Christians will release themselves from pursuing righteousness at, at a strong cost. Because, I mean, listen, Paul's saying, I'm overwhelmed by sin, I can't do it. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't describe everyone, so that doesn't describe you, don't think it doesn't describe somebody else. Because none of us are omniscient, right? I'm talking about people struggle with this. And I think people identify with that. And that's why I spoke to that against that more than anything else. Because I think people will think, Man, I can't have confidence over pornography. 
I can't have confidence over things that are really gripping in my life or even addiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've had people use that passage mm-hmm. to not necessarily justify addiction, but to make it seem like addiction is biblical. Look, it's like, ah, no, <laughs> it's real. And I think people, it's, there are some sins that are way more difficult to fight than others. But like you can't overcome it. I don't see that anywhere in the New Testament talking to believers. So that's one of the dangers. Those are dangerous implications, I think. Subtle to like, ah, uh, you just kind of, ju- I mean, I think you can even justify making excuses for why we commit certain sins because it's like, hey, Paul struggles too. Now, well, the good thing is people say, oh, I can identify with that. Cool. But I just don't, I don't think that's what the, I don't think that's what that passage is there for. And I don't think God wants you to identify with that more than other passages that talk about your identity and all that. I think God wants you to identify with Romans 8 more than Romans 7, for sure. Well, um, someone asks, um, can you, uh, what are the definitions of and the distinctions between sanctification and justification? So justification is God saying you're forgiven and you're not going to be punished for your sin. And sanctification is you learning how to obey Jesus and fighting sin. So one is a a declaration, not guilty. The other is a process of growing. So one is a journey. One is a moment. You are justified when you believe in Jesus Christ. You're not guilty. This is why the thief on the cross has proof. Let me give you proof. Luke 23, I know y'all always need proof. Man, stop it. Listen, Luke, thief on the cross, all right? He's dying. He can do no acts of repentance. He says to Jesus, in pain, same nails in his body. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? What does Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. What obedience did he do? He just believed that Jesus was who he said he was, and he said, you're justified. You couldn't do one act of sanctification because today you're going to be with me because you're going to die today. You can't do no repentance. You're going to die, but you know what? Because you believe in me, you're justified. You'll be in paradise. That's the beauty of it. Amen. Um, uh, what encouragement uh, would you give to someone who may have, you know, looked at Romans 7 as a struggle between, you know, as a sanctification, um, you know, pointing out the need for sanctification and the difficulty thereof? Um, how would you encourage someone who um, is convicted by habitual sin that they don't be, uh, become depressed about that struggle? So that's a tough question to answer only because I don't know what you mean by habitual sin and and what conviction is there if necessary. So I don't. So here's what I would say. If you are a Christian and struggling with habitual sin, which I think on some level we all do on some level. I think you see, here's the thing. The Christian life is about faith in what God says, right? It's not just faith that like you're forgiven for your sins, but there are other things you have to have faith for. And believing that you have power over sin. So that's what you're describing is 100 percent 
what he's talking about in Romans 6. He's trying to say, listen, your justification gives you power over sin. He doesn't say the presence of sin will be gone. That's why in verse 12, he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So he understands that there's going to be a struggle with sin. But don't let it reign over you because you've been justified. So I would say, first, I think you need to really ask the Lord to help you believe who he says you are once you believe in Jesus. And to help you do that, I think you need to read. I mean, if you read, I mean, read, just meditate on Romans 8 for a while. I mean, you don't even got to leave what we talked about today for real. Like you go to Romans 8 and just read that. And I would even memorize it. Say that to yourself. I mean, that's the stuff that's true. You look at 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says this. Look, we we demolished every stronghold raised against the knowledge of Christ. And we take our thoughts captive like a lot of the Christian life is renewing our minds and taking our thoughts captive. What a lot of us do is try to change how we feel. Yeah. And we just can't do that. We're, not, we're never told to change how we feel. We're told to change how we think. Because how we think will inform what we do. You can be angry as I don't know what in your heart. And, and why does Paul say be angry and not sin? Because it's possible. It's possible. So I think for many of us, we're always, we're just feelings people. We're just, we're, just, we're just aware of how we feel. I feel like this. That's why we think Romans 7 is about sanctification. And we think condemnation is about how I feel when I sin. God isn't worried about that. I mean, he is, but not in the way that we think. He's, he's trying to help me say condemnation means you're justified. You're, declared, you're, you're either guilty or not. And he said there's no condemnation. So I think I would, I would take Romans 8, and I would just memorize and meditate on that. And I would pray and ask the Lord to help you grow confident in who he says you are, because the point is live sanctified, live in that, that journey because of the moment of God saying that you're justified. Like imagine this, if, you, if someone gave all of us a billion dollars, that would be the last time any of us worry about anything. We'd mm. walk into a, a Maserati shop and be like, let me get four of those. <laughs> Some of us would, I'd probably hit the Cadillac shop, but listen, Going in, let me get four of these. And they would be like, uh, sir, that's, that's going to be $2.2 million. You'd be like, and? I don't even got to ask how much it is because I got too much money. I can cover it. Unless you're going to tell me it costs a billion dollars, I'm good. Let me get four of those, please. As a matter of fact, because you said that, give me three of those in orange. Right? If you had a billion dollars, you would never worry about how much anything costs because you could afford everything. You wouldn't get worried about the details. Well, what about this? And what about that? And if we spend that? You know what Paul is saying? You have a billion dollars in grace. You have a billion dollars in grace. God has given you all of this. You don't have to worry about all this stuff. Just live free. Live as if that's true. You got a billion dollars in grace. And we up here penny pinching with all this money in the bank. Like, like Chris Rock and I'm going to get you something. How much for a rib? Ask, asking, can I pay $2 for it? And pulling out $10,000. You, you, we've been given a billion dollars in the grace of God. So he's saying live free of that. The same way we would if we had a billion dollars. I wouldn't worry about no money issues. God is saying, listen, you don't have to worry about God looking over you like, oh, I'm going to, oh, you, you didn't read today. You did, oh, you, you sinned today. I saw you, you know. That's just not how it works. He's like, listen, like Christ's death on the cross is so significant 
that even when we fail, God says, I will not deny myself. You still belong to me. It's not like God chose you and then said, okay, I don't know what you're going to do. Let me see your, like, he knew you were going to struggle and he still said, I'll take that one. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. That's the real. So we need that. We need that. There's a lot of people in here all and stuff like we're talking about puppies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the beauty of having people back. Here's, here's some other questions. Um, and if you have not submitted a question yet, uh, these are the last three questions. Um, so um, you can... You know, text Kurt or whatever. Yeah, these are the last three, regardless of what you're saying. Right? Yeah, okay, that's I'm making saying. sure. If it, that's some people exactly don't feel like what, what you're saying. saying. Yeah, I'll yeah, be like, hey man, I need something to drink. I need to use the bathroom. Yeah. Hey, four more came in. All right, cool. No, yeah, it's not yeah, gonna happen. Like, you answering them joints. Mm-hmm. Now I'm good. I'm good all day. I, I, mm-hmm. I know this is a weighty issue. I'm good all day. I'm good all day for the next 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> so this I'm first. I at another church at one thirty. Um. So this person says, I'm trying to wrap my head around how much uh, condemnation is internal versus external. Mm. Um, they right think that it's possible that we can uh, want to admit that we are sinners without trusting in the deliverance that Jesus gives. Mm. So they ask the question, is it wrong to think of condemnation as not trusting God to justify you in Christ? Is it wrong to think of condemnation? Say that again? As not trusting God, basically. Is it wrong to think of condemnation as not trusting what God says about you? 100%. Mm-hmm. 100%. Mm-hmm. Listen, take me up on this challenge. Go through, read, 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 read through, I'm just going to just give you three. Read through Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians. Okay, just those three books. Go through and highlight all the verses that speak to who God says you are. Mm-hmm. Just those verses. Just read those three letters, all written by Paul. Same dude who wrote Romans 7. The same dude who apparently is struggling with sin and is overwhelmed by it. Go read all those letters and just highlight, find the verses. So I'll give you a hint. Most of Ephesians 1 is talking about God justifying you before eternity passed. Ephesians chapter 2 is God talking about him justifying you as a gift, not by work so that no one can boast. I can keep going. Go through those and just highlight those and, and look and see how much the New Testament talks about who you are as a result of believing in Jesus. And you won't find any passages unless someone walks away from the faith. In Hebrews mm-hmm. 6, if they've tasted of the spirit and then reject that, it is impossible to restore them back to God. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right. There are people who walk away and it's like, okay, if you walk away, don't expect forgiveness to be waiting for you. This is what we have to realize, like all what sanctification is, is God preparing us to spend eternity with him. We can't go to heaven after not living for God and stand in his presence. Like if you didn't love God now, why would you want to hang around him there? It just doesn't make any sense. It's not even practical. It's not like when you die. You're all of a sudden, the, nah, who, you're going to die as you are, and you're going to come, <laughs> you, you're going to see God, and it's going to be, how you, know, how you live is how, it's going to be the same. Look at the Abraham and Lazarus, that, that story, the rich man and Lazarus. That dude died, and it was like, hey, you're the same dude. It's like, that's just the reality. Like, God is preparing us 
This is why Hebrews 11 is, is crucial when he says this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And, here, and this is why we're saying that we think it's wrong what you're saying. Here's what Hebrews 11 says, particularly verse 6. For if we are to have faith, we must believe, one, that God exists, and that, two, he rewards those who diligently seek him. So part of faith in God is to believe that he rewards those. So if we don't believe that he rewards us for seeking him, then we don't have faith right. in God and it does not please Amen. him. Right. It is imperative. Right. And to be honest, many of us don't take that seriously. Right. Right. Because we live in such sanctified perspectives, we, don't really, we think we got justification down and the really, reality is we don't. Mm. That's why we import sanctification in all these passages. It's just not there. Okay, this, um, there are a lot of words to read here. Um, One of those. Yeah. Um, but at the beginning of the message, you talked about how we can't possibly understand the paradigm shift of going from Mosaic law to Jesus. Do you think that Christians today, often people who grew up in the church, see uh, Romans 7, 14 through 25 as relatable to their struggle with sin because they were raised in the church and growing up didn't come to understand the faith as anything other than following a list of rules. Like seeing Romans 7 as relatable to sin struggles uh, be almost a failure of the church or family teaching people who grew up Christian. 100%. 100%. When I was, a, um, when I was traveling more as a Christian rap artist, I used to do, I don't know what y'all laughing about, I'm tight. So, <clears throat> I got balls, I don't know what y'all talking about. I'll battle anybody after the service is over, I'll battle anybody. I got balls. Don't play with me. Don't play with me. You're not, re you're not ready yet, young man, you're not ready. I need to hear your mixtape first to see if you're ready. All right, so, when I used to, when I used to travel, I would do a lot of, um, this is before I had kids, I would do a lot of concerts and I would do them, like they'd ask me to speak to their youth groups. And I remember, I remember being at Creation Festival in front of tens of thousands of people and asking questions like this. How many of you grew up in a Christian home? People raise their hands. How many of your parents treated you like Christians when you grew up? I don't mean taught you doctrines, but actually treated you as related to you like Christians. And people are like, what do you mean? So like when your parents sinned against you, even though you were a kid, did they ask you for forgiveness? You would see hardly any hands go up. And I was like, wow. And then I would have people come up and talk to me afterwards and share all these stories of, you know, their parents, like, you know, you know, they argue with their sibling and their parents will cuss them out and tell them to love their brother. Like, how you... <laughs> how you go? I remember that happened to me one time. I was just tired and my sons was acting up and I said, boy, stop whining. And the Lord was like, uh, what are you doing right now? Like, I, I think, exactly, right? I think there's a lot of do as I say, not as I do. And I think one of the reasons why is because as parents, we think that our job is to train our kids, and we forget that God uses their disobedience to train us. Yeah. And so what I, what, one of the things that I learned from this whole thing of traveling, and I learned, like, hey, man, I need to be a Christian to my kids and not just teach them. So for a long time, I didn't teach my kids theology. I taught them, I, I, we would just, it'd be practical. And when I sinned, if I was harsh with them or harsh with their mom or whatever, I would be like, boys, please forgive me. 
And so they get they, my kids, they understand that. And so that is a product in our home. They understand the practical understanding. And it protects them from thinking, oh, my dad thought he was, you know, everyone thought my dad was all this. But then at home, it was like, nah, I'm the, I got to ask him for forgiveness too. Not, not because, oh, you're my child. You don't, I don't got to ask. No, because I'm a Christian. And that's what Christians do. And I learned that from that. So do I think that happens? 100%. I think that happens a lot. I think a lot of parents. And it's hard to. Being a parent is not easy. Listen, let me, let me tell you something what people don't realize. In the Bible, there are maybe five verses, six verses on parenting. Most of them are children are a gift from the Lord. I'm talking about parenting, not about children. So when I see these books like this thick that are like, oh, how to raise your kids, I'm like, where are you getting all that info from? Because <laughs> I see five verses in the Bible that specifically talk. It is not as easy. So, so what do you do then if you don't have a lot? You got to just be a Christian to your kids. So I think that's done a lot of damage of why people would see Romans 7 and say, I relate to that. Because I grew up keeping these laws, and that's what it felt like trying to keep them. That's why a book like Give Them, Give Them Grace, one of the best books ever on being a parent, Give Them Grace. I think every parent, as a matter of fact, I'm about to reread that. I think every parent should read Give Them Grace. If you're planning on having children, you should read that book. Give Them Grace is the best book I've read. It's better than Shepherding It's All in Books. To me, Give Them Grace by Lisa Patrick is incredible. And this is uh, the last question. Thank you, Kurt. Um, the person asks, uh, why do you assume that Romans 8 and 1, that therefore in Romans 8 and 1, refers back to Romans 7? Why not a reference like back to Romans 3, uh, 31 or 4.25 or 5.21? Because the typical rule in the Bible is that the therefore all doesn't go beyond the, the last therefore. So the last therefore in Romans was Romans 7, 13. So typically, I mean, it could be bigger than that, sure. But the rule typically is the therefore is talking about the most recent. And if you're not sure, then you usually judge it by the, pre the, the, next, the previous therefore. So verse 13 is the, 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 the last therefore. So verse 14 through 25, to me, is covering the therefore of Romans 8, 1. I'm sorry, I overlooked this question. So um, here it is, uh, the final one, the grand finale, all that. I totally understand what you're saying, but does a translation make a difference? For instance, this person reads the King James Version where 7-2 says the word me instead of you. Uh, does it matter that Paul states himself uh, rather than us? Uh, and they, they said eight, eight two. They said yeah, and then they said I'm sorry, eight two. I think the overall arch. So I think in a case like that, then you have to look at the overwhelming data. So that was so even if the King James version says that, other translations I see don't say that. But say the King James version, the only version, right? The King James version. That's what some people think, but they be swear by that King James one. You know, saying the only reason why it's called King James, that was the name of the king. It could have been King, king Charles, for real. Um, that translation is not more inspired than other translations. But the overarching argument is still, and you still have to say, okay, then where does Paul speak like that than anywhere else? Even if you think that's what he's saying, you won't find him saying that anywhere else in the New Testament. And then you look at the overarching, the, the flow of Romans 8, is about justification language. So even if Paul said me, 
The point is he's talking about justification, not sanctification. That's the main point. Paul isn't talking about struggles with sanctification. He's talking about we're justified. There's no condemnation. So all those struggles that he's listing in that I think is an analogy, even if they're personal, personal things like this is my personal struggle, he's still pointing to, but there's, but there's no condemnation for me. I'm not going to be declared guilty for being a slave, for being un, unable to, to resist this sin. I'm not declared guilty by God, so I need to live with confidence because of it. The issue is still the same issue, even if you take out the personal pronoun. All right, I think that's the last question. All right, thank you guys for, for coming and participating and being here. It's good to see people in here. And uh, thank you for your questions. Hopefully it was helpful. Uh, the next two weeks, we're going to focus on Easter. So we're going to have a Passover sermon next Sunday and then an Easter sermon the following Sunday. And then we'll pick back up in Romans 8 when we get finished with that. All right, thank you guys. Don't forget, Wednesday night, one another. I mean, our groups, we're in our D groups. Lord willing, we'll see you then. And don't forget the wristbands. If someone has a color wristband, respect it. You might touch somebody if they hit you in the face. I don't want, don't sue the church. That means you did not look at the wristband. Say it again. Oh, I'll say that for.